if you have uh, your Bible, uh, which I hope you do, you can turn there uh, to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a stack of Bibles over on the table there. You can feel free to take one, use it, take it with you, give it away to someone. We have many of them, and we'd like to give them out, so feel free. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 9. Everyone there? You good? You ready? Okay, here we go. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you again that you speak to, to, to your people, to us, uh, that you have given to us your word that we might know you. That in knowing you, we might know who we are. And we thank you that what you find, what we find when we hear you speak is not a word of condemnation or judgment, but we find the words of, of grace and kindness and love and forgiveness for all those who will put their trust in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray this morning again that you would lift up to us your son, that he would be exalted in our midst, that we would find all of our joy and peace and rest and hope in him. We know how many different things there are that, that our hearts go to and that the world offers, that we should find rest in those things, but they're always, they always fail, they always disappoint, but not your son, Jesus Christ. When we look to you, we find true satisfaction and hope and, and joy and rest and peace. So help us again to find our soul's rest in you. Lord, be honored, glorify your son, nourish your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we are continuing in our Advent series uh, through Isaiah, and we're considering some different ways that the prophet describes and foretells the coming of 
the Messiah. You remember two weeks ago, uh, the coming of the Messiah uh, was described as a sign, right? The, the virgin birth would be a sign from God uh, that he would dwell with us, not only spiritually, not only covenantally, but that literally and physically he would come in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to dwell with his people and that we might have the promise of literally and physically dwelling with him. And then last week we saw the coming of the Messiah described as light coming into the world. And as the light comes into the world, it pushes back and ultimately defeats the darkness. This morning we see Jesus coming described as a branch, as a branch that will shoot up from a stump and bear good fruit. That language might seem a little weird to you, but Isaiah is essentially using the language of a family tree. You guys are familiar with a family tree. Has anyone done the, those like ancestry things where you plug in your information and it kicks out, you know, all the people that you're related to through, you know, the the, the ages? And it's essentially a way to, to sort of trace your family history and your family tree. And if we're uh, if we were to do Jesus' family tree, it would take us all the way back to to Abraham. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, right? Uh, he says, the book of the genealogy of, uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you may, may remember back in, in Genesis 12 that God makes a promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and that he would bless his, this, this nation so that it would be a, a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then in Genesis 15, God doubles down on his promise to Abraham. He takes Abraham out before the night sky, and he says, look up in the night sky and try and number the stars. So shall be your offspring. He's going to make this massive, in other words, God is going to give to Abraham this massive family. And, and here's the thing, the whole point of that family will be that the, that family will be uh, meant to, to bear witness and testify to the world of the, the blessing and goodness of living under the kind and gracious rule of God. But by the time we get to Isaiah's day, by, by the time we get to Isaiah 11 here, God indeed had made for himself a nation and a family, but that nation had utterly failed to, to trust God and to be a blessing to the nations in modeling what life under the rule of God looks like. Instead, they had rebelled against God. They had turned to the idols of the nations around them. The the leaders of Israel had put their trust in foreign kings. We read about that the, the, the past two weeks with King Ahaz. And as a result, we see in the early chapters of Isaiah, God telling Isaiah that he's going to judge he, he's going to, and this is how he pictures it, he's going to chop down his family tree. And so God raises up the nation of Assyria to conquer Israel. And in chapter 6 of Isaiah, God calls Isaiah to announce this judgment. And essentially, if you go back to this afternoon, you can read this passage. In Isaiah, Isaiah 6, he pictures the judgment of God essentially laying waste, creating a wasteland, and he pictures judged Israel like a stump, a tree that's been cut down. In, in uh, chapter 10, he refers to Assyria as the axe in his hand that he actually uses 
to cut down his family tree. And so he says to Isaiah that after his judgment comes through, after he swings his axe of judgment, all that will be left is a stump. But God's judgment only begins with the household of God. It continues on. Uh, What we find later on is that God's judgment is actually going to turn on the axe, right? The axe that is Assyria, the axe becomes uh, a forest, right? It gets pictured as a forest. And after God has judged his own house, he turns to judge the nations. And so the verse that comes right before the beginning of our passage says this. It says, behold, this is Isaiah 10, 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. If you've driven down Tuckahoe Road recently, they've started a new development. Like there's another development that they're putting in. What's that? Yeah. And uh, the first thing they have to do is clear the land of all the trees. And so there were a couple days there where all the trees had been cut down and all you, you just saw this wasteland of stumps. And that's what God is picturing for Isaiah. This is what my judgment is going to look like. When it comes through, I'm going to cut down my family tree and then I'm going to cut the nations down and it's going to be a wasteland of stumps. It's into this context that we hear Isaiah saying in chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So as Isaiah spins the diamond and gives us sort of a slightly different look at what the coming of Jesus is all about, he says Jesus is like a little branch that shoots up amidst the carnage of God's judgment. And it's through that branch that God will fulfill all of his promises. It will be through Jesus Christ that God will fulfill his promise to make from Abraham a family greater than the the number of the stars in the sky, a massive family tree with billions of branches. And it's through Jesus' life and death and resurrection that all the nations will be blessed and included in that family tree so that when we get to, so listen, when we get to the final family reunion, that's what, that's what heaven is going to be, you realize. When we get to that final family reunion, when all God's family members are gathered together, this is how John describes it in Revelation. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Does that sound familiar? Sound like God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, a great multitude that no one could number. And he says that great multitude will be made up from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in his righteousness, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, where all of Jesus' ancestors, right? Where all the people, if you were to look at Jesus' family tree and you go back, you see all his ancestors, where they failed and sinned and rebelled, where where they failed, he will succeed. He will be faithful. He will bear fruit. 
And, And what is the fruit that this branch will bear? The branch will bear the fruit of a completely redeemed world and a perfectly redeemed people. That's the fruit that this branch bears. A perfectly redeemed world and a completely redeemed people. Now here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Have you tasted that fruit? Have you you savored that fruit this week? That fruit that the branch, the righteous branch bears. My... um, my dad gave me an apple recently. It's called an Evercrisp. Do you, have, do you know this apple? Have you heard of this apple? It's like a magical blend of a Honeycrisp apple and something else. And this thing is, it's huge. And it's so sweet and tart and juicy. And you cut this thing up and it's big. And you, like you can make a meal out of this apple. And when you bite into that apple, you feel all those natural sugars surging through your body and giving you life. And our passage this morning speaks of that fruit that comes from the righteous branch. And and here's what I want you to know. When you sink your teeth into that fruit, right? When God in Christ comes and gives you that fruit and you sink your teeth into into that fruit. That is, when you begin to savor all of the promises of God to you in Christ, it gives such a a sweetness, such a, a life, a peace, a joy, and a hope that will animate you and sustain you and cause you to persevere no matter what you are facing. Have you tasted that fruit this week? That, that's what I want to do this morning. The next half hour, I want us to taste that fruit together. The fruit that comes from the righteous branch. So I want you to look at three things here in this passage. I want you to see the branch. I want you to see the fruit. And I want you to see how you get to eat the fruit. The branch, the fruit, and how you get to eat the fruit. You ready? Here we go. No one answered me. I just assume that you're ready. We're going. <laughs> okay. The branch. Uh, okay, a couple of years ago, it must have been like, uh, I'm going to say three years ago, uh, in my backyard, there, uh, I, had to, I had to chop down a holly bush. There's one of those holly bushes, and uh, I, every time I would ride by it on the lawnmower, it would like, you know, get me, prickly, and I, was, I didn't want the kids to be out there and get stickled by the, you know, you know which one I'm talking about with the leaves and the, they poke at you? Um, so I cut the bush down to the stump. I got my chainsaw out, zipped it right at the bottom. I got a stump. And I'm thinking, you know, th- there's nothing left of this thing, and it's just going to rot and decompose in the dirt. Um, but no, that, that, that holly bush uh, could not be so easily destroyed. By the end of the summer, so every, every you know, time I would go out and mow the lawn, I'd see there's my stump that I cut down. And then by the end of the summer, the, the summer there was this little shoot, this little branch, coming out the side of this stump with one little holly leaf on it. I was like, dang it. So this, this is a, a, a picture of what we see here in, in, a, in Isaiah 11, a signal of hope uh, that life was still possible for this bush. And Isaiah looks at God's people, right, reduced to a stump, no signs of life, but God shows him this little shoot, a branch 
from the stump of Israel's failed leaders and their persistent rebelliousness, which led to their judgment and their ultimate exile. A a branch was going to shoot up, and this branch would signal the promise of life and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And Isaiah says in these verses, here's how you can know that this branch can do and fulfill all of these promises. He says, here are the qualifications, if you will, of this branch. So here they are. You ready? The qualifications of this branch. Verse 2, Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We're describing the branch now. The spirit of God rests on him. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If you go back into the Old Testament, God had endowed the kings of Israel with a measure of his spirit. Uh, if you go back into the, the book of uh, 2 Samuel, you'll find that um, both, or, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel, you'll find that both Saul and David, when they are anointed as kings, uh, the text says the spirit of God rushed upon them. And, when, and then the, the flip side of that coin is when God rejects Saul. You know who I'm talking about, Saul? When God rejects Saul, the spirit of God leaves him, departs from him. And, and here's the point, right? The point is, apart from the spirit of God, left to their own devices, I'm going to tell you something that you guys are going to be like, duh, yes, we know this, okay? Apart from the spirit of God, sinful men who are given the authority of a kin, king, who are given power, will only use it to abuse and to benefit themselves. That's, what's, that's the sinful bent of mankind. You give sinful men power and authority, they will use it to abuse and benefit themselves. And again, by the time we get to Isaiah's day, there is nothing left. You see in King Ahaz, you see in all, uh, there's a couple good kings in there speckled in, but by and large, the story is king after king failing to do what God has called him to do. And so by the time we get to Isaiah's day, and Ahaz is a perfect example of this, there is nothing about the king's rule that conforms to the spirit of God. No justice, no mercy, no wisdom, just idolatry and faithlessness and violence. And listen, I'm saying that you're going to say, duh, because there's nothing new under the sun, right? You guys know this. I know we don't live in a, in a theocracy with a king, but you know what it's like to have corrupt leaders, right? You know what it's like when authority breeds greed and, uh, you know, graft. And so uh, our our leaders are in in many ways no different, right? There is one thing waiting for people when they put their ultimate hope in human rulers and human governments and in sinful people. The thing that is waiting is, is disappointment. And listen, I don't care what side of the aisle you're sitting on, by the way. This is, I'm, I, don't, I don't want you to hear this as a partisan rant, okay? I don't care what side of the aisle you are sitting on. When sinful men and women are given authority, the, the same thing happens that you see here happening in the Bible. You see corruption and greed and deception and manipulation and injustice. And it, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. It kills me when I hear Christians and they look at the, the state of the world and they go, I can't, I just can't believe what's happening. Do you see our leaders? Do you see what's happening? And I say, I can't believe it's not worse. I mean, if, if you really take stock of what the Bible says about people, about mankind, it's, it's, a, it's mercy that we are where we're at. 
It's mercy that this whole thing hasn't collapsed in on itself. Why, why are we surprised by this? When we look at leaders and we look at uh, the, the, the sin and the greed and the corruption, all these things I just said, why are we surprised? I'll tell you why we're surprised. Do you want to know why you're surprised? Here's why we're surprised. Because deep down in our hearts, we have this little corner of space where we go and we tell ourselves how different we are from them. Right? We say to ourselves, if I were in their shoes... If I were in the shoes of these leaders, I, I would never do that or say that. But the Bible says, apart from the gracious working of the Spirit of God in you, yes, you would. Yes, you would. I would be the most disgusting, vile goblin of a human being were it not for the grace of God. Do you know that about yourself? You know, you get those little windows. God gives you windows to see like what's actually down in your heart. And you're just like, man, I got some stuff. I'm jacked up. We know that if left to ourselves, we just don't even have a category for the the, the depths that we would go to. It's a wonder that there's any order to our government or civilization or to our own lives at all. It's the, it's the restraining grace of God that we're able to live it with any semblance of order. Because the truth is that apart from the gracious working of the Spirit of God, we devolve into self-seeking, narcissistic, loveless, truthless, hopeless, faithless, godless monsters. That's the Bible's picture of humanity. And so if ever there is going to be a ruler that can right the ship, so to speak, who can right the ship of this fallen world, the only hope that we have is that this person will have such a full measure of the Spirit of God that he is able to rule with absolute wisdom and absolute understanding and absolute knowledge. And Isaiah tells us that when Jesus Christ, the the righteous branch shoots up out of that stump that we that he will not merely have a measure of the spirit of god but that he will have it without measure that the spirit the very spirit of god will rest on him it will remain on him he will be god himself incarnate you remember at Je- you don't remember what happens at jesus baptism two things happen at jesus baptism one You see the Spirit of God coming down and coming to rest on Jesus like a dove. And then you hear the voice of God thundering out. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And and why is God so well pleased at the baptism of Jesus? Having seen the Spirit of God coming to rest on him, it is because everything Jesus does is, is the perfect expression of God's wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. He has perfect knowledge of everyone and everything in every circumstance. He, he always knows how to discern what is good and what is best. 
He, he is perfectly able to bring about all his purposes without one ounce of frustration. In, in everything he thinks, in every word he speaks, in everything he does, in every breath he takes, he perfectly accomplishes the will of God. And so he is perfectly qualified as one who has the spirit of God resting on him to rule over God's people and to bring about this perfect world. So he has the spirit of God resting on him. Remember what we're doing. I'm describing the branch for you and the qualifications of the branch. Okay? Number two, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. That's verse three. You see there, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The the fear of the Lord is one of the biggest themes in all of the scriptures. And let me put it to you this way. When the Bible wants to summarize the entire law of God, you know this. How does, the, how does the Bible summarize the entire law of God? Two commandments. What's the first one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how the Bible summarizes the summary? How, do you sum, how does the Bible summarize the summary? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. What, what is it to fear the Lord? It is to be so stunned and so captivated by the, the worth and the beauty and severity of God that you live all of your life as an act of worship. That's what it is to, to fear the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is, is so all-encompassing that when Paul, right, when you look in Romans 3 and Paul begins to sort of lay out this litany, this, this onslaught of of indictments against the human race, right? There is no one who is good, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God, and so on and so on. When he gets to the end of it, do you know how he summarizes it? This, this, this assessment of humanity, what, what's fundamentally wrong with the human race? There's no fear of God before their eyes. But not so with the righteous branch, right? He will be all that those who came before him, failed to be. In everything he does, he will exhibit a perfect love towards God and a perfect love towards neighbor. Every moment of his life will be a selfless act of of worship meant to bring glory to his heavenly father. Every decision, every motive, every affection of his heart will be driven by his desire to bring glory to his heavenly father. And do you hear the language of delight? It will be his joy. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. In in, in other words, it will be the very nourishment of his soul to do the will of the Father. Look, to, to give you a contrast, right? When you think about your own life and you feel desires and cravings rising up in you, like when you want to feed your soul, so often don't you find in yourself that the desires and cravings that rise up are not good ones, right? They're bad, they're sinful desires. But, but the righteous branch, the desires, the cravings, the thing that he longs for the most, can you imagine what this would be like? By the way, this is a beautiful picture of what it will be like in glorified bodies in heaven. But Jesus gives us a picture of it. Do you, do you know what it's like for Jesus? Every moment of every day, the longings and the cravings that he has is to do the will of God. That's what rises to the surface, right? We feel those desires rising up in our hearts and we, we have to like kill them and squash them. But the desires that rise up constantly, continually in the heart of Jesus are to do the will of the Father. So why John says, my food, in John's gospel, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish 
his work. So here's the picture that we have of this righteous branch so far. He will be a, a ruler who is perfectly qualified to rule because he has the spirit of God resting on him. And so he has perfect wisdom and perfect understanding and, and, and perfect knowledge and perfect power. And not only is he perfectly equipped to rule, but with all, of the, with all of that equipment, his desire is forever and always to accomplish the good purposes of God. And now finally, we see that he is a righteous and a faithful judge. Still describing the branch, he is a righteous and faithful judge who will preserve and protect what is truly good and will destroy everything that is evil. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 3. It says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, here, here's the problem of a world that is corrupted by sin. Even though there are justice systems in place, they can never judge perfectly. They, they judge by what their eyes see and what their ears hear. All a judge and jury can do is hear testimony and weigh evidence. And they can take stabs at motive and try and establish intent, but never can they actually pierce into the hearts of people. Not only that, but we know that sinful men and women are so easily corrupted, right? So easily swayed by their own bias, their own partiality, their own lust for power and reputation, and money. But this branch, the righteous branch, judges perfectly because he judges not by what his eyes see and what his eyes hear, but by the rod of his righteousness, right? He, he can't be bought. He can't be corrupted. He can't be swayed in his judgments by a bribe, by the promise of a promotion, or by the threat of a demotion. He has all, and he is all. Because he always longs to do the will of God. And no one can persuade him to, to sweep injustice under the rug. And his righteousness pierces through the very motives of the hearts of men. And that he is faithful means that he never fails to discharge his rule as a judge. He is always and forever and consistently and steadfastly righteous in his judgment. So we see that the, this branch. Can you, now listen, here's what, I want to, here's what I want you to imagine. Can you imagine the kind of world that would be brought about by such a ruler? Take that picture of the ruler I just gave you, the very spirit of God resting on him, who, who delights in the fear of the Lord and who judges with perfect righteousness and faithfulness. Can you imagine the kind of world that be, would be brought about like a, by a ruler like that? Can you imagine the fruit that that branch would bear? That's what the rest of this passage shows us. So I've shown you the branch. Let me show you the fruit. This is the fruit that comes from the branch. Are you ready? Two things I want you to see. The fruit of the branch is a redeemed world and a redeemed people. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. 
and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now what's interesting is if you, if you look at the, uh, what scholars and theologians say, they kind of disagree exactly precisely on what this passage uh, means. They all agree that it's symbolic. Right? It'd be pretty disappointing if what was being said here is just like literally animals aren't going to fight with each other and children are going to be able to play with snakes. Okay? So there, there's a symbolic meaning, but commentators disagree on what the, the actual symbol is. Uh, some argue that these animals of prey represent these aggressive nations that have preyed on Israel who will be brought into, they'll be pacified and made docile by the reign of the branch. Um, but I, th- I think there's a better way to interpret this passage. I think it's a broader, uh, I think there's a broader, uh, fuller way to interpret that. And, and that's to see in this passage the wholesale reversal of the curse. You understand what I'm saying? To see the wholesale reversal of the curse. And I think that's because of the, the summary statement there in verse 9, right? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Sin brings violence and destruction and death. It brings enmity and hostility between God and men and between one another and between man and the the created order. But the redemptive rule of Jesus brings forth the fruit of a new world, a new heaven and a new earth where the effects of sin have been totally reversed. You excited about that day? That day's coming, brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wolves not attacking, but dwelling with lambs. Leopards lying down with young goats. And in this world, it's it's the humble who are exalted, right? It's the children who will lead them. And when we look at the final picture John gives us of this redeemed world, it sounds a lot like verse 9, right? We think of that, that final picture in Revelation, Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's, that's, a, that's another way of saying what Isaiah is saying here in verse nine, that there will be no hurting or destroying in all my holy mountain. So, so look, here's the point. What is the fruit of the righteous branch? It is the fruit of a perfect world of righteousness wherein all evil is destroyed and, and all suffering is gone and all death is removed. And it's a place of ever-increasing love and joy and peace. But, but, hear why. The second thing, the fruit of the branch is a redeemed people. All of that, right, this perfectly redeemed world is grounded in the reality of a redeemed people. Look at verse 9. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the epicenter of Jesus' redemptive rule is the fact that he has come to redeem not merely a world, not merely a created earth, but a people. Now, there's two ways you can get at this. First is to just see that the, the, the branch bears fruit. 
Now you could take that word fruit and take it to mean sort of the, the general effects of the branch. But do you know in the scriptures, so often fruit is a way to speak about people, offspring, progeny. Which is why, if you were to go all the way back into the beginning of the book, uh, into the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, what is God's command to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, right? And so the, the fruit of this righteous branch, is a, it's a people. It's a redeemed people. But there's a, a, a second way to get at that reality, and that is this statement in verse 9, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cov- cover the sea. There is a way in which the created order, when you think about plants and trees and birds and animals, right? the created order is endowed with some kind of knowledge of God. Isaiah 55, if you were to look later on in, in this uh, book, you, you find, uh, and this is sort of, uh, we use a big word, it's anthropomorphic language for treating animals and plants like they're people, but the idea that what, the, the mountain and hills are said to be singing for joy and the trees and the rivers clap their hands. So there's this, in some way we can speak of uh, the, the created order having a knowledge of God. However, when the scriptures speak of knowing the Lord, right, that word knowing the Lord, overwhelmingly they are speaking of the unique way in which God has enabled people, his image bearers, to know him in covenant relationship. You tracking with me? Overwhelmingly, when the Bible uses the word know, it's the unique ability God has given his image bearers to know him in covenant relationship. So when Isaiah says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, he's saying everyone everywhere in this new redeemed world will know God perfectly in covenant love. And again, that knowing is, is so much richer than just a cognitive affirmation. Speaking of Adam and Eve, right? When, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and then they fall, the, the first thing you see is that Adam knew his wife Eve and they bore a son named Cain. Okay, now don't make that weird. What I'm saying is that that knowing is speaking of the intimate relationship, that covenant relationship that exists between God and men. And he says that this this kind of intimate, loving relationship will characterize everyone in this new redeemed world as the waters cover the sea. You you understand that that picture as the water covers the sea? He's saying wherever there is water covering the seas, that's how the knowledge of God will cover the new heavens and the new earth. And so the question we ask is, well, what places on the sea are covered by water? And the answer is all of them, right? Wherever the sea is, there is water. Every part of the sea is covered by water, and that's how it will be with the knowledge of the Lord. Everywhere and among everyone, there will be this intimate, knowing, covenant relationship with God of perfect, sweet fellowship. And because everyone will know the Lord, the creation that was once plunged into futility and corruption because of man's sin will be set free from its bondage to decay. And Romans 8 puts it this way, it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when Isaiah pictures this this little branch shooting out from the stump of Jesse, from the ruins of God's people, he pictures 
this little branch becoming a, a massive tree with a, with a multitude of branches sh- shooting off from it, bearing countless redeemed fruit, his children, his offspring, his people, whose final redemption will sig- signal the redemption of the entire created order. Now, don't you want to bite into that fruit? Don't you want to bite into that fruit and savor and, and, and taste the sweetness of that reality, right? So, so many nights we, we go to bed with the bitter taste of our failures and our sins and our sorrows and death. We, we have that bitter taste in our mouth. But God in Christ invites you this morning. Brothers and sisters, God in Christ invites you this morning to again bite into the fruit that Jesus brings. This perfect rule, this fruit of redemption, the fruit of joy and peace and hope that comes with knowing that, that you have been perfectly reconciled to God and that no matter what happens in this life, everything that I just described and more is, is waiting for you. It is the sweet taste of knowing, listen, brothers and sisters, it is the sweet taste of knowing that whatever is happening in your life right now, you can't lose. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? You, it, you, in the end, it all works out for you because of God's grace to you in Christ. In the end, you will get everything your heart has ever longed for and every tear and sadness will be wiped away. So the only question that remains is how do we get to eat that fruit? You got a branch, you got a fruit. How do you get to eat that fruit? Well, one of the things that you see in this passage is a recurring theme in all of Scripture. And that is that God works salvation through judgment. You hear me? God works salvation through judgment. So let me give you a couple examples so you can get these ideas connected in your mind. Right? When God announces the judgment that he's going to bring through a worldwide flood, it comes also with the promise of salvation through the ark that he's going to save and rescue Noah and his family on. And it was God's hand of judgment that fell down on Egypt through the the plagues, and most memorably when the angel of death sweeps through the land and slew all the firstborn, which simultaneously brought deliverance to God's people. It was through, remember the judges? It's through the judges that God brings a measure of salvation to his people from their enemies. And now we see here in verse 1. Look at verse 1 in that passage. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It is through God's judgment against his people whereby he will chop down his own family tree and whereby the forest of the nations will be chopped down to stumps and it will be from the wreckage and the wasteland of God's righteous judgment that this righteous branch will shoot forth. And this righteous branch will will rule so perfectly and so wisely and so justly that he will usher in a kingdom of perfect righteousness such that the curse is utterly removed. And all of this is meant to reiterate the same theme that God brings about salvation through judgment. Fast forward 750 years and do you know what we see? We see the greatest manifestation, the greatest demonstration of this truth that God brings about his salvation through judgment. 
It's through God's judgment poured out on Christ. Listen, I know you heard this before. Listen to me. It's through God's judgment poured out on Christ at the cross that he works full and complete salvation for his people. You see, the, the reality is that you are no different from faithless Israel. You are no different from the godless nations and you are no better than, the, remember we read in Matthew 3, those prideful Pharisees that come to John, to John the Baptist to which John replies, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen, apart from the grace of God, that is your reality. The axe of God laid at the root of your tree, ready to be cut down. Why? Because we have not borne the, the good fruit of God's image bearers. We, we haven't lived as those governed by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, I prayed along these lines, tells us what the fruit is of those who have the Spirit of God. A, a loving, joyful, peaceable, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled demeanor. But so much of our lives is lived after self, apathetic to God and, and those around you, not filled with joy and knowing God and doing his will, but, but craving the idols of our hearts, not, not peaceable, but argumentative, sharp-tongued and gossipy and slanderous. But listen, as, as that axe of God's judgment gets cocked and ready to, to come down at the root of your tree. When the axe falls, it doesn't fall on your tree. It falls on the righteous branch. The axe comes down and chops down Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is cut down by the judgment of God and thrown into the fire in your place. He, he bears the judgment of God for your sin and your failure in your place so that you could become partakers of this wonderful fruit that he would bear. So that you could be clothed in the very righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ himself and be counted among the number of those who will know God forever as their father. God's salvation comes through judgment and the righteous branch brings eternal life from his death. John 12, uh, Jesus is talking about, he's, he's preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and he says, uh, my hour has come, the hour uh, by which the son of man is to be glorified. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see what's being said. Jesus, the righteous branch, comes into the world to bear the fruit of a glorious, redeemed people and a wonderfully redeemed world. And he knows in order to do that, he must die. The seed must fall into the ground. And in a sense, the seed must die so that it can grow and bear fruit. And so it is with Christ. He is cut down by the acts of God's judgment 
but like a seed, he's, he's dropped into the ground. And at the resurrection, brothers and sisters, at the resurrection, he is raised the perfect Savior and the, 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 the righteous branch who bears the fruit of a complete and full salvation for all that would put their faith in him. That, that's how you eat the fruit of this branch. So brothers and sisters, eat, eat that fruit. The Bible has all these different ways of, of saying this one thing. Trust him. What is it to eat the fruit? It is to look at all that God has done in Christ, all that Christ has accomplished by his life and death and resurrection, all the promises that have been secured to you by God and to by faith take them as your own and savor them and dwell upon them and trust in them and bank on them. And I know it's easy to lose sight of all those promises and to be overwhelmed by what's happening right in front of you. It's a a fight every day to to look at Christ and to to savor those, to bite into the fruit again and savor those promises. But but look look how, how much resources there are here in this passage to do that. One of the very interesting things that you find in this passage did you see that part? In, 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 uh, it's in verse 5, I believe, where he says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know, Paul, Paul's a smart guy. You know the Apostle Paul? That's an understatement, right? Paul's a smart guy. Before there was Paul, there was Isaiah. And when Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about putting on the whole armor of God, he's using language that Isaiah used 700 years earlier. If you go throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah you'll see in three places where Isaiah speaks of this kind of language of these things like righteousness and faithfulness being put on like armor. In Isaiah 52, he'll speak of uh, the gospel being these uh, things, you, the, the, something you put, good news being uh, what you put on your feet and what publishes peace. And then in Isaiah 59, you'll see God literally putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And then you get to Ephesians 6 and Paul just picks up the language of Isaiah. But here's the thing. In Isaiah, that armor is God's armor. God wears the breastplate of righteousness. God wears the helmet of salvation. The the Messiah, the righteous branch, puts on the belt of righteousness and the belt of faithfulness. But do you know what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6? He's saying, Christians, don't you know what you have in the gospel? You have the whole armor of God. Now listen, that word of is tricky here. So when we read that whole armor of God, we think armor that is like pertaining and related to God. But the of there, I think should be better read because of Isaiah as possession. It is the armor of God. It is God's own armor. It's the armor you see God wearing in Isaiah. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. And Paul is saying, in the gospel, the very armor of God has been placed on you. Do you see? God takes off, in Christ, God takes off his armor and puts it on you. The very righteousness that belongs to Christ is placed on you. The salvation that he comes to work, the helmet of salvation, he comes and puts on your head. And he gives you the shield of faith and the God, he makes you ready. He gives you gospel shoes so that you can bear fruit in the world. And he gives you the, the sword of the spirit and prayer so that you can withstand the attacks of the enemy. I know it's so hard to, to cling to these promises and to bite into this fruit. 
But don't you know what you have in the gospel? The very righteousness of Christ, the very helmet of salvation by which all of these promises are yours by grace. Not because you earned it, not because you did anything, not because you had a great week, not because your devotions were so amazing. Brothers and sisters, because he lived and he died and he rose again. Because the seed fell into the ground so that it might die and then bear fruit. And what is that fruit? The fruit of a redeemed people. You that have a redeemed world to look forward to so that you can weather any storm. I, uh, I suppose probably by the time I get to uh, the summer, I'll, you know, I'll have to cut this holly bush down again. It's crazy. Like I, if, you go, if you come to my house, I'll show you out back. That little, that little single branch turned into this, like the bush is back. And I probably should cut it down, but now I kind of don't want to. Right now I look at it, and you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the resiliency, the steadfastness, the, the, the certainty of God's promises. That from a stump, right, that God through judgment works salvation for his people. And from the righteous branch that comes from the stump of Jesse, he will fulfill all of his promises to his people by grace through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, sink your teeth into the fruit of the gospel, into the fruit that the righteous branch bears for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage in Isaiah 11 and for the picture that it gives us of a redeemed world and a redeemed people and the salvation that you have worked through the righteous branch, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, cause us to fix our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we know your promises to us. Help us to believe them. Help us to see their certainty and the security of those promises assured to us in Christ, who is seated now at your right, your right hand, work finished, ruling and reigning until all his enemies should be made his footstool. Nourish these brothers and sisters to the degree that this word has been faithful. Would you encourage and build up and strengthen your people? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.